your host, Alex Garrett. Ladies and gentlemen, you could have been anywhere in the world tonight, but you're here with us in New York City. Are you ready? Welcome inside Adapting with Alex Garrett. Oh, if the shoe fits, wear it. Let's adapt together right now. Well, I really cannot think of a better day to talk about adaptation than Veterans Day. I mean, our men and women put themselves in the line of fire, in the line of duty to protect this country each and every day, right up to the very minute, across the world and here at home, and they have to adapt to the battlefield. But I do believe... My next guest highlights one of the biggest adaptations, one of the biggest things for this country from the Fighting Bunch. Chris DeRose, uh, thanks for joining me today. You are a uh, you know a best-selling author, and you're actually part of. You were a former attorney general, uh, part of the attorney general in Arizona's office. But you're writing this book. Um, first of all, thanks for joining me on Veterans Day today. Oh, my pleasure to be here. Thanks. Uh, Chris, what made you write about the Fighting Bunch, and and why is it important to highlight today? It's this incredible untold story about these veterans who went off and fought in World War II and returned home to find that the freedom that they had been fighting for abroad wasn't there. They came home to corrupt law enforcement, uh, political machine that had stolen every election during the war years, uh, so total failure of democracy and representative government in McMinn County. Um, they returned to find open-air gambling and roadhouses, brothels. Uh, and, um, you know, it just, just was nothing like the place where they'd grown up or the place they thought they were fighting for. And so it's this incredible story of the greatest generation of these GIs who came back from World War II and... Um, had to fight one last battle for their freedom. Not not against the Nazis or against the Japanese, but uh, against the bosses of their hometown. That is uh, that is wild. And how did they do it? Like, what was their what was how did they find the cause and how did they fight the cause uh, in their hometowns? So first, what they did was set aside their partisan differences. So you had Republicans and Democrats and Independents get together and form the GI ticket, which was made up of all veterans uh, of every stripe. And they recognized that their political differences were secondary to, um, to, the, to the shared goal of restoring free elections to their hometown, that every, every other dispute over taxes or what have you was, was subordinate to that. Um, and so they formed this GI political party um, but the machine, you know, the machine isn't interested in losing to them. And so they'll try to win as they always have, by having the most guns on Election Day, by controlling the process, and ultimately by controlling the count. Well, you know, I would say you talk about part, putting aside the partisanship because right now we're in a very partisan time. But I would say just the term and the idea and the people of the greatest generation keep us bonded together, do they not? That whole generation keeps us bonded, and it's like a foundation to America in addition to the founding fathers. Yeah, they had their shared experience at war and their shared sacrifice of uh, wartime on the home front, and they had the same shared experience of the Great Depression. Um, and so, yeah, they had a, had a lot that they had lived through as a generation, a lot that they'd experienced collectively. 
Um, and that's why Republicans and Democrats were able to set aside their differences and take on the machine. It's uh, called the GI Nonpartisan League, by the way, for people that are just, uh, you know, following up on this and following with this uh, with Chris DeRose. And uh, you were a former senior litigation counsel to the Arizona AG. Obviously, Arizona in and of itself is a state that's maybe too close to call still. We don't know. I don't know what you're hearing out of there. But did you get to know in this research for this book? Obviously, it took a lot. There's there's a lot in here. Um, what was it like hearing from the stories of these uh, these veterans uh, from their families? It was an incredible privilege to be the first person outside the family in many cases to hear these stories. I had access to recordings of some of these veterans that their families had made or that they had made before they passed. I had access to the, the private papers and their diaries and letters and the recollections that they'd shared with their children, and each one was an absolute privilege. Uh, really, every day of this felt like a treasure hunt, um, and felt like uh, felt like you know I was, was going to get up and go try and find something new that nobody nobody found before. And it was, it was a great experience researching this book, and I'm so glad to be sharing it with everyone. Now, maybe you're not familiar with McMinn County. It's in Tennessee. It's in Memphis. Uh, it's like a suburb of Memphis. But three thousand soldiers returned. Uh, in that county alone, that's a lot. And and county-wise, is that number always like that, or was that an anomaly? Like, would you say on average, how many of our suburbs of our counties have that kind of number returning every year? Yeah. So Macmillan County is midway between Chattanooga and Knoxville, and it had about thirty thousand people uh, in 1946, and 3,500 of them had served in World War II. It's just an extraordinary number when you consider how many senior citizens there are, how many people who are too young to fight, uh, how many people in middle age are too old to fight, how many people have uh, a bad eardrum or some kind of injury that would prevent them from serving. When you think about the list of eligible people, right, who are eligible, eligible to serve in the war, and then to send 3,500 out of 30,000, it's just an incredible number. Now, McMinn prides itself. You know, Tennessee is known as a volunteer state. They pride themselves on serving in war. McMinn calls itself the volunteer county of the volunteer state. So they're incredibly proud of how many men are veterans that have served in the military in America's various conflicts. Well, as an author, I, I, I have a feeling you seek out these stories. And so what drives you to study um, this genre, this history, this this amazing uh, backstory to our veterans that come home? Yeah, so long before I was a writer, I was a history junkie and a reader. And so I try to research the things that I'm interested in reading about. And to spend this much time with a, a subject, you really have to be obsessed with getting the answers, right? You really have to be obsessed with spending every day you know, and just being excited to delve into the research and learn about a new subject, because otherwise no one's going to want to read it. And so these are all just subjects that are of interest to me. And I say, oh, boy, is there a book about that? Or if there is a book about that, is it recent? Is it comprehensive? Is there room for something new? Um, and, you know, if, if I feel like the, the road is clear, um, then... then you know, I'll, I'll write a book about it. Um, but that's been true for everything I've, I've ever written about, from Founding Rivals, which is about 
two future presidents running against each other for Congress. It's the only time that ever happened in American history. Uh, and if Madison had lost to Monroe, we wouldn't have our Bill of Rights. Um, and so really, if we didn't have our Bill of Rights, the country would have had a tough time staying together at the beginning. And so this one really important election for Congress between two future presidents helped determine the course of American history. Um, and then my second book was about Abraham Lincoln's time as a member of Congress. Believe it or not, there's 16,000 books written about Lincoln or his time as a member of Congress really had never been the focus uh, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a comprehensive book. Uh, so I'm just looking for these opportunities in history, you know, to talk about these singular events. You know, I wrote The President's War, which is about five former presidents who were still alive when the Civil War broke out. You know, nobody had ever stopped to to look at what they did during the war and how they reacted to the war and how they both interfered and helped with Lincoln. So, uh, and then here in the Battle of Athens, you know, the only successful rebellion on U.S. soil since the American Revolution, led by World War II veterans against the corrupt political machine. Well, I mean, what a story. Right. And, you know, nowadays militias are, and believe me, I, I think today's militias are a little more wild and their their cause is not as as valiant as what these armed rebellions that you write about, you write about were, would you agree with that? Like today, when we hear militia, it's not as glorified as it was fighting for freedom to begin with. And then this rebellion that you mentioned in Athens. Yeah. Well, these guys weren't a rebellion in any or a militia in any real sense. I mean, it was very almost spontaneous. I mean, uh, most of the GIs felt like they were going to get a fair count um, on election day. And they never expected that it would come to violence. Uh, Bill White and some of the others always thought they, they would have to shoot it out for the ballot boxes. But, um, but, um, um, well, let's just say their cause was more valiant, and that's why that's why you wrote about it, and uh, and that is admirable. Now, I, I got to ask: Is the GI nonpartisan ticket or nonpartisan league still around? No. So. Um, Shortly after they won the election, you know, you still had three Democrats on the ticket and two Republicans, and they didn't stop or set aside their long-held beliefs about how government should work. Um, but it, it lasted as long as it needed to, which was to get the machine out of town. And wouldn't you say, though, that the the idea of veterans serving is alive and well? I mean, we, Dan Crenshaw, yeah, he just Dan lost— Dan Crenshaw's a great example. Um Really, in the, the great, if you think about how many greatest generation World War II veterans served as president, um, you know, and even during the events of this book, you've got, well, the GI ticket is running in Tennessee. You've got veterans like John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon running for Congress for the first time that year. So um, you had veterans throughout the country who were saying, you know, um, I've risked a lot, sacrificed a lot, and saw a lot in order to protect this democracy, and I think I might be able to serve in peacetime as well. Was it hard for them to serve with the PTSD? I have to ask this. Well, you know, one of the things I wanted to be, um, one of the things I wanted to do with this book is to take a real clear-eyed look at PTSD. I think it really gets papered over in other works, but, I mean, we're losing more veterans to suicide than we are to combat. Uh, at this point, today in this country, with the resources we have, with the things we know about it, you can imagine what it was like for a World War II generation, where they're still calling it shell shock. They really don't understand what's happening, and culturally, 
they're not supposed to talk about what they're going through. Right. And, um, I wanted to make sure to include as much of that as possible in the book. You know, there was a, a uh, son who told me his father would wake up in the night screaming. That's in the book um, because people need to know that that's what happens when you send people off to, to, to war. Uh, that, you know, just because they come home for war doesn't mean the war ends for them. And so, uh, you know, I talk a lot about PTSD in the book. Uh, obviously, it's no impediment to, to rendering incredible service. I mean, we have, uh, like you mentioned, Dan Crenshaw, but there's a number of combat veterans in the, the post-9-11 generation serving in Congress right now and in other capacities. And obviously, none of that is stopping them from landing Not at all. the country again. But, you know, I, I, I first kind of picked up on it when I would, I, would try, I would find out these names that might be associated with the event, that I'd look them up um, online or in genealogical databases to try to see if I could find them or their family. And one thing I was shocked by, by how many of them died young. Like, didn't necessarily die in the war, but maybe died 10 years after the events of the book. And um, you find in so many cases it's, it's um, suicide or you know, perhaps they developed a drinking problem. Um, and so I think we, we need a greater awareness of what this gener- greatest generation went through after they got home. And so I hope I accomplished that with the book. Well, let me ask you this, because there's another battle, uh, aside from immediate return and, and that, and then they're overcoming, and now this amazing story out of McMinn County. I'm a, I am very happy to say that some of these veterans are surviving COVID now. Yeah. I mean, that is probably because they're just resilient to begin with, right? That's why 99-year-old World War II veterans are surviving coronavirus. You know, I, I think there's a lot we don't know about how it hits you. And um, I have I have young, incredibly fit friends who've been hospitalized by COVID. And um, me and my wife have some people we know who are a little bit younger who died of COVID. And then I have um, you know, there are people in their 90s we know who've survived it. And so I, I, I think we don't, you don't quite know how it's going to hit you or how your body's going to react to it, which is one of the many awful things about the virus. Well, sticking on adaptation, though, uh, in your research, how do these veterans adapt to the battlefield, adapt to coming home, adapt to fighting this battle? How do they adapt all the way through? I think if you want to put it in the most simple terms, it is um, you, you adapt because you have to. You know, um, coming from, I mean, these guys hadn't been much farther than Mackman County when they went off to war. You know, maybe they'd been to Chattanooga. Many of them had never been to Georgia, which is just over the state line uh, from where they grew up. So all of a sudden, you're halfway around the world with a gun in your hand. But you adapt because you have to. It's a matter of survival. Um, And then when you come home, and if you come home to an ideal scenario, it's tough. But you adapt because you have to. Um, And in this case, where they come back to McMinn County, it's not a happy homecoming, and the county is dominated by this corrupt political machine. They adapted because they had to, and they returned. So a small number of them returned to the battlefield one last time because they felt it was the only way to get their home back. Wow. Well, let me ask you this. Did the family talk about the adaptations that these heroes made? Yeah, I mean, and in many cases, I had their letters to talk about what it was like to come home from the war. 
Um, and Which you got to read, by the way, in The Fighting Bunch. It's called The Fighting Bunch, The Battle of Athens, and how World War II veterans won the only successful armed rebe- rebellion since the revolution. Uh, this book also should be an inspiration to have hope that, yes, um, we can overcome the machine, as you say, in our own ways, one way or another. Yeah, we can, whatever the machine looks like, you know, whatever those difficulties are. Uh, but also it provides a, a blueprint because after the shooting stopped, this community reconciles pretty shortly thereafter and pretty completely. Um, they set aside the battle and people went on with their lives. And one of the things I was hurt by, by how close some of these friendships were between people across the previous divide that existed before the battle. And if people who were just shooting at each other can find a way to make peace, then any people, especially Americans in 2020, should be able to figure out a way um, to, to, to live harmoniously together, you know, instead of the, the current polarized and divided climate that we find ourselves in. Chris, I know you got a website. I believe it's called Chris Rose Books. Is that correct? Yeah, com, And that's where if they, because obviously a hard copy today, ordering it won't get to, to the Veterans Day. But if you want a Veterans Day reading today, you can order off Amazon, uh, you know, like a Kindle or something like that, right? Yeah, you could you could read it on Kindle today. You could listen to an audio book today. And so I, I highly recommend it. Now, uh, Tom with Chris DeRose, you were the litigation counsel to the Arizona AG. Um what are you seeing with all of the country right now? I, I got to ask you this now that I have you. What, what are you seeing in this sure. whole country and the whole litigation going on? Is this going to lead to anything or, or what? Um, so I'm actually, and yes, and I serve in that capacity for the attorney general, but I've also worked uh, as, a, as an attorney for campaigns and political parties going back over a decade in five different states. And so this is sort of the rare election where I'm not actually – working for anyone in the legal capacity, um, I, I wouldn't expect much of any of these challenges because the margin of votes are too, too wide in too many different states. You know, um, it's going to be a pretty decisive electoral college victory for Joe Biden. And so even if there were enough votes in controversy in one particular state, and there isn't right now, but even if that were true, you'd be flipping one state. Um, you know, it's, it's not a one-state victory. It's a, it's a more comfortable margin than that. You know? I would agree. He was pretty much well over the margin. I think calling him president-elect is correct, isn't it? Uh, yeah. I mean, technically, you're not the president-elect until the Electoral College meets and uh, picks you. But um, in our common parlance, whoever we think is going to be the next president, we refer to as the president-elect. So the Electoral College will meet, and then a joint session of Congress on, I believe it's January 6th, We'll meet and tally the electoral college, and then it'll be official. Wow! Um, so that's so. So, are you saying in a way we've we've kind of just mislabeled it the whole time? Like they we don't even wait till January sixth. It sounds like. Yeah, you know it's a good shorthand because we we know what the electors are going to do, right? We know what the electors are going to do. It's very unusual for electors to vote for someone other than the person for whom you know they were they they were elected with. Um, so it's very unusual. There's an entire Wikipedia article on faithless electors and the list of all the people who who bolted. So that's very rare. If this had come down to one or two votes in the Electoral College, I think we'd probably still be on pins and needles because there would still be a chance for someone to, to switch in the Electoral College and actually 
officially throw the election from Biden to Trump. I mean, it's said it close, but this is not going to be it's not going to be very close. I mean, Biden can afford to, to lose a, a lot of you know he can afford to lose a lot of electors, and because these people are so very careful, usually party stalwarts. You know, the people who've been very involved with the party, so to switch sides would be the opposite of everything they've ever done in their life. Um, the people who are usually very well known, either to the presidential campaigns or to the state political parties, local political parties. And so the idea that they're going to switch in any large numbers and change the outcome of an election is, um, is basically zero. Chris, I think I've heard more information from you than I have over the last few days that is is more um, not biased, I guess you would say. So thank you for that, for sharing yeah. that, that perspective. Um, one last thing, you obviously wrote about this because, uh, well, I wonder, do you have family that served or do you have family that serves? Like, is that military service in their family also why you wrote this book and then why you've covered this part of history? No, um, no. My my one grandfather was exempt from service in World War II, and another um, was in the army at the tail end and never got deployed. So it's uh, just something I really deeply admire and respect about our country is the commitment to service, and uh, particularly what our country accomplished in World War II, um, and what that generation of you know most of whom didn't have high school degrees. Um, didn't you know you know they were high school aged or um 18 19 20 year olds traveling halfway around the world to to fight for their country to fight for freedom to respond to Pearl harbor um and and succeeded you know we live in the world that they created and so um this is just one more fantastic and basically unknown story about the greatest generation and it was my privilege to tell it I'm talking with Chris DeRose. By the way, you can find him on Twitter at Chris DeRose, D-E-R-O-S-E. Chris, one last thing about this. Isn't it nice that even during COVID-19, we're still seeing honorings across the country on Veterans Day? Like that is a nice piece of normalcy to to see today in a very abnormal year. Absolutely. You know, there's nothing that's going to get in the way of us um, stopping to think about and remembering and honoring our veterans. And on that subject, I hope you don't mind if I um, Go for talk it. about one more project I'm working on. Uh, it's along those lines. So while I was researching the fighting bunch, you know, one of the great things about my job is I get to read through old newspapers. And um, I found this story with a really strange headline, something about a phantom Marine. And I said, huh, that sounds interesting. And came across this story of a guy named William Langston who was declared killed in action on Iwo Jima, March 7, 1945, who apparently reappeared in his hometown in Arkansas for two days in January of 1946 and then vanished again. And so I started a podcast to try to investigate this mystery, this, this apparent death of William Langston and his alleged reappearance in Newport, Arkansas. The podcast is called the Phantom Marine Podcast. You can find it anywhere you get podcasts. You can find um, a page on my website, chrisrosebooks.com slash phantom. Uh, we just had the first episode come out last week. second episode should be up in a couple of days here. Um, but this is a really strange mystery, and it's one I'd like to resolve, particularly for the living family members who for over 70 years 
have not known whether their loved one actually died in Iwo Jima and is buried in the grave with his name on it, or whether he made it back to the United States and disappeared somewhere. Um, and so I think it'll be of, of great interest to anyone, but particularly on this Veterans Day, um, trying to resolve a, a one remaining mystery from, from World War II. Well, I'm going to actually title that in my podcast uh, for today, like author and host of the Phantom Marine. Now, that is fascinating. And by the way, I've got to ask you, were you inspired to do this? Because you see the podcasts and, and even Netflix series leads to results of unfounded mysteries. I mean, it, it does happen. Yeah, I am hoping to solve this. Um, this isn't just a mental exercise or telling a fun story. I really do hope to get to the bottom of this and uh, figure out what happened. Chris, your book, uh, The Fighting Bunch, The Battle of Athens, and how World War II, your most latest book, I should say, because you've written a lot, you're a bestseller from St. Martin Press today. Uh, what's one thing, though, that this that many people may not know about the best-selling author, Chris DeRose? What's one thing they don't know about me? Oh, gosh, that's a good question. I think there's probably a lot of things people don't know about me. Um, but... Um, um, I've got uh, a wonderful, um, I am the second smartest person in my marriage. Uh, my wife is a breast radiologist and a physician who's taking care of people during COVID. Um, and um, definitely my better half in every way. And I just became a father for the first time in August. Wow. So thank you for, for answering that. And, and God bless you on your family. And thanks to your your wife for doing that and that just reminded me that you know it's amazing years later the greatest generation served us to keep us free and safe i I think it's pretty neat that we're seeing sort of a pattern of healthcare workers serving them now to keep them safe to keep the greatest it's almost like um it just is is a nice giving back uh from us to them i would say yeah, I mean, we have had over a thousand healthcare workers die in the United States since COVID began, so we're losing we're losing more um, healthcare workers than we are police in the line of duty, more than we're losing troops in Afghanistan or elsewhere around the world. It really is a, a combat situation for these healthcare workers day in and day out, and I don't think they're getting the recognition that they're due. And I still say they need the hazard pay, right? I mean, I don't know if they even have that yet. Yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, I think we would just settle for, um, I think they would settle for operating in a safe environment, which thankfully my wife works for a great employer that uh, has, has always made sure that she has enough PPE um, and that there are processes to make sure, you know, who's entering the hospital, who's, you know, have they, do they have symptoms, have they had a fever check? Um, they're really doing everything they can to try to keep her safe. And uh, what it largely depends on is, the public taking it seriously and, um, you know, conducting themselves accordingly. This is a very serious virus that um, no matter how young or healthy they are, could hospitalize them. And um, they'll be bringing that into healthcare workers, to frontline employees like uh, grocery store workers. Um, and so really ultimately, you know, what, what healthcare workers need from the public um, something like that shared sacrifice that the greatest generation had during the Depression and World War II, you know, really working together to try to stop the spread of this virus. Right. And, and as we're talking, one last thing to put a bow on all of this. If these veterans in McMinn County in August, on August 1st, 1946, didn't do what they did, how different would the 
Tennessee landscape look, even the international political landscape look? Yeah, so uh, number one, the machine would have remained in control of the county indefinitely. And it would have been not clear how and when it would have ended, because if they could, if they could fend off a challenge from hundreds of World War II veterans with all the people of the county against them, um, nobody even would have tried again. So they would have remained in charge of the county indefinitely. But this rebellion actually helped brick the back of a statewide machine, um, watching these veterans have to fight for the ballot boxes really was the key factor in destroying the machine of boss Trump out of Memphis, who had controlled the state of Tennessee for decades and stolen hundreds of elections. Um, and, you know, this was front page, this is a front page story across the country for a week. Um, and so I think it, it probably inspired a lot of veterans to get involved in politics. And it probably also served as a warning to a lot of bosses throughout the country to say, you know what, um, be careful of these guys. You don't know who you're messing with. Wow, that's a pretty telling way to say that because obviously veterans are Americans, they're part of this country, and we're seeing them every day be that that part, you know, that be part of society in in so many great ways. So, uh, thanks for bringing this to light, Krista Rose. You're a New York Times bestseller. You've joined this podcast, and please come back and tell us how that podcast project goes, uh, Phantom Marine. Yeah, the Phantom Marine. I appreciate you giving it a plug, and we'll see if we can't get that one solved. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. You got it. I'm Alex Garrett. Say thanks to a veteran today, and remember them in your hearts. Well, I would say every day, but today especially, just if you see them, thank them. Follow Chris DeRose at Chris DeRose Books. That's Chris, D-E-R-O-S-E, Books. Follow me at Alex G in NYC. Thank a veteran, and thanks for joining us. We'll talk to you again soon.